In his book, Good to Great, Jim Collins talks a lot about having the right people in the right seats on the bus. Is the process of starting or growing a development team and getting those right people on the right seats on the bus for your organization a little daunting? Who should you hire? How much should you pay them? What should your expectations be for new staff? What is the best strategy for growing the development office over time? Well, let me tell you, we've got you covered. Join us for the Petrus Development Virtual Summit on Growing Your Team, Wednesday, January 26, 2022, from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Central Time. On this virtual summit, the Petrus team will be joined by experts such as a recruiter for religious nonprofits and the development director for a major archdiocese who helped build their office from zero to 25 staff. Register today for the Growing Your Team virtual summit by visiting petrusdevelopment.com education. See you there. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. Not big in stature, but seeming bigger for an almost mystical air of resolution, this man drove his stake farther and farther into the ground until it had pierced the innards of a sleeping monster who would awaken with a roar that would shake the countryside. A monster who would belch millions of barrels of black, rich, crude oil that would awaken Conroe to a rip-roaring prosperity, the like of which had never been seen before. That day, as he planted his stake in the ground, he stood alone. So Andrew, you teased this episode with... George making a deal with his wife, Susan. Now I know what the deal is. And for the listeners, I want to, I want to prep it up just a little bit of this would scare the pants off of any husband anywhere at any time. Uh, You're not wrong about that. So again, George had a premonition to drill around Conroe because the rivers were running the wrong direction. The cattle and the deer were not drinking the brackish water. And he recognized the Lagardo Reynoso geologic formation, just like he had seen in Mexico. So he goes out, he leases 8,500 acres around Conroe, but he doesn't have any partners. He's turned down by eight oil companies about going in like he had done in Mexico. Remember, he was just the middleman. So this was going to require him to do it independently. And he had just enough money between his savings and an investor from Mexico to do it. But his wife made him a deal. She said... I'll tell you yes under one condition, George. If you hit like you think you're going to hit, you will never complain about what I spend ever again. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) So, George gets to work. It's a wild time in East Texas. The Like I said, Spindletop was discovered in 1901, so there were a lot of people looking for oil out in East Texas. And they'd actually declared martial law and brought in the National Guard to keep order. Because too many people were breaking into the oil fields and stealing oil at night. So George spends months assembling a team and spends months assembling a rig. His whole idea is that they have to drill deeper than 5,000 feet, which was basically like as deep as oil companies were drilling up to that point. But I mean, this was extreme. This was... What you're saying is is this is beyond what they've ever done before. Correct. And they needed a special kind of rig, and they needed uh, a special kind of oil well. 
and the one that they needed actually had three boilers, which propelled the the drill. And each of these boilers weighed 30,000 pounds. But in order to get them to where they needed, they had to go over, there was a single bridge they had to cross that had a 5,000 pound limit. So George and his buddy ended up sitting under the bridge one day and one night waiting for a loaded down cotton truck to drive across because a cotton truck loaded down was about 20,000 pounds. So the first time one goes across, it rattles the bridge. You know, they're literally like hanging out under the bridge. The whole thing's shaking. It gets across and his buddy looks at George and says, well, it made it. And George says, all right, let's do this. So they go. Many stories of my childhood started out that way. Yeah. So they load up the boilers and they take him across in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. so the police wouldn't pull him over and stop him. He also needed a special kind of driller because drilling this deep needed somebody who was really skilled. So as stories go, there was a guy named Harvey Lee, but George didn't know where to find him. So he literally drove from camp to camp asking about Harvey Lee. Finally, somebody pointed him to this trailer. He goes up, and there's a woman there, and he says, I'm looking for Harvey Lee. Do you know where he is? And what do you think her response is? Who's asking? (laughs) (laughs) You answered that pretty quick, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, a lot of stories from my childhood. So so George says, it's me, George Strake. I'm trying to drill a well. I think we were going to make a lot of money, and I need Harvey. So, of course, she says, oh, yeah, he's in the trailer. Come on out, Harvey. So they get a team together, and they start assembling the rig. But they are operating on the cheap, right? This is like all of George's life savings. And so they have to burn wood instead of burning coal because that burning that builds up enough steam in the boilers and it powers the drill. But there was another problem. It actually wasn't burning hot enough because at some point in there, a forest ranger had come out and said, hey, guys, if you're going to be burning wood, you need to put these filters on top of the smokestacks to keep the forest from burning down. But it wasn't burning hot enough. And so one of the workers told Strake, uh, so I think I can fix the problem, but I need you to go to town for a little bit and then come back. So Strake says, okay. So he goes to town, he comes back, and everything's working much better. And George said, uh, what happened? He said, well, take a look. And he had fired a shotgun through the filters <laughs> to open them up to let enough air come in so they could run the boilers at a higher temperature. But even with the filters, so the filters were there to protect the forest. Even with the filters, they were constantly lighting the forest on fire with sparks coming out of the out of the fire, out of the boilers. And so multiple times a day, they had to shut down all operations and actually put out the forest fire. So there was a lot of work. It was constant. And keep in mind, there was no guarantee that any of this was going to work. This was all George Shane. I think that this is there. I see these clues, and we just need to continue to move forward. So this sounds like a big risk. How is he motivating all these people to help out with this project that may or may not even succeed? Yeah, so a couple of the people he's making deals with. You know, he needs people to transport the timber. He needs people to operate the rig. He needs people to recruit other workers. And in some of those cases, he's actually making deals where he's giving away like 10 acres or 20 acres. And so... It's almost like equity in the dig. So if it hits, then they'll get rich. And we'll tell you the story later. But suffice it to say, George Strait makes a lot of people really rich by giving away 10 and 20 acres at a time. Which is a smart way to do it because he didn't have a whole lot of money to begin with. Correct. So if he were to pay people off, that's a higher expense. He didn't have the money to do it. So he would start shaving off this equity in order to bring people in where he would lose 
less on the downside, but also have to give quite a bit away on the upside. Yeah. And I think if, if you look at the timing, this might be a buyer's market for somebody who's looking for lots of people to help them potentially strike it rich, right? This is the Great Depression. Yeah. When yeah. you've got lots of people out of work and they'll take a risk on, I'll, I'll take a share of land and put it in my sweat equity here. So it's kind of funny. Other companies have used this technique as well, a lot of startups. And there's this pretty popular story about Facebook when it was getting started. They wanted somebody to come in and paint a mural in their offices. And so they found this guy in Los Angeles and he said, well, yeah, I'll I'll paint you a mural, but I don't want you to pay me. I want equity in the company. And so they ended up giving him like a fraction of a share in exchange. And I mean, we all know Facebook, one of the most highly valued companies in the world. That guy made a lot of money for painting that mural. Oh, yeah. So same thing with these folks that George is recruiting. So December 13th, 1931, which is a Sunday, is a big day. Strake is attending mass at Sacred Heart in Conroe, and one of the roustabouts comes and gives Strake a very important message. We've hit a gusher, he said. Strake's response is, I'll be out when mass is over. And that's just the way he is. God put all that oil and gas down there for all those years. He thought it could wait until after mass. So... December 13th, George Drake, number one, oil well hits. And actually, according to the history of Sacred Heart Parish, Strake donated most of the money to build a new church after he made it rich. But that was just the way he is. The story about him being at Mass, and this is what he's been working for for months and really for years. It hits, and he doesn't immediately jump up and run out to it. He says, hold on, I'll be there when Mass is over. The oil can wait. That had to be hard. I mean, if, if you sunk everything you have, all your hopes and dreams are in there, and someone says, hey, uh, by the way, everything you ever wanted and dreamed about is uh, come true, yeah. uh, oh gosh. I think it really shines a bright light on on how important Mass and you know that second person in his life that he depended upon, which was, which was his faith, which was God. Yeah. I think that, that's really an interesting story that points to how important he was yeah. to George Strait. Totally. So did word spread pretty quickly about this strike? Yes. So in 30 days of December 13th, the population of Conroe went from 2,500 people to over 15,000 people with people flocking to Conroe, looking for work and trying to get in on the oil action. George leased 8,500 acres. So he basically like had the entire plot to himself and these pieces that he carved up, but that didn't stop people from trying to get in on it. And, you know, we're talking about martial law. I'm sure there was a lot of shenanigans going on at this time. But he continues. So they start a second well. June 5th, 1932, George W. Strake, number two, hit and immediately begins producing over 10,000 barrels a day. I don't know a lot about oil, but that seems like a lot to me. That is a lot, a lot of oil. You know, I'm, I'm from Oklahoma. This is kind of a way of life for a lot of us here. And I know a lot of people that are in the oil business, uh, either uh, small levels or large levels. You know, a lot of small operators, when I say small, I'm talking, you know, private investment. A 20 barrel a day oil well is, is a good oil well that produces day in, day out for somebody. That's 20 barrels a day. We're talking 10,000. A fantastic one may be somewhere around 25,000 barrels a day. And really, you don't hear about those hardly anymore, but 10,000 is a ton. Yeah. I mean, do the math. You went through and looked at a lot of that math. Yeah. So the price of oil in 1931 was around $14 a barrel, right? 10,000 barrels a day, that means that they're making $140,000 worth of oil every single day which translated to today's money is about two and a half million dollars 
a day. Over the course of the year, you're talking about $51 million in 1931 dollars, which t- translated today is almost a billion dollars a year just from that one well. And this is all from somebody who risked everything. Yeah. I mean, if he lost, he was down to begging for food. Yeah, I mean, that that's the nature of being a wildcatter, right? Can I ask a question? I'm the token northerner. I didn't grow up with any of this this oil lingo. What okay. on earth does wildcatter even mean? Okay. All right. So you know what a wildcat is, like a lynx or a puma, right? Indeed. Yeah. So imagine going out and trying to take possession of a lynx. Good luck. Yeah. It's kind of a risky <laughs> move, right? So literally, that's where they get the term from. It's about as risky doing operations like this, particularly in the oil field, is about as risky as trying to go out and take possession or grab hold of a lynx in the wild. Is the risk from just the chances of hitting oil versus not hitting oil, or are there other factors involved too? So there's a lot of risk because like we were talking about with George, he put all of his money in. And if he he hits a, a dry well, or let's say it produces for a week and then it never produces again, he's out. He has not recouped any of his investment. So you can literally go broke as a wildcatter if you put money, your own personal money especially, into one of these projects and it doesn't hit. There's also just literally physical risk as well. And in fact, there was an incident in 1933 where a well blew out, which means that it exploded and it created lots of fires, which they had to put out, and it created this massive crater. And so the only way to put out the fire, the oil was literally burning, is Strake brought in this guy, H. John Eastman, and he drilled the first directional well in Gulf Coast history. So what that means is instead of drilling straight down like you would in a typical well, he actually drilled at an angle from a couple of plots over and into that well. And so they were able to close off the part that was burning and then send the well out this directional pipe, which incidentally, that's the same technology they use today in fracking, which has allowed the oil industry to be able to harvest oil in other places around the country, in the north, especially in the Dakotas, other places in Texas that they thought previously they weren't going to be able to get oil out of. Are you looking for a chance to connect with other development professionals and learn the latest in fundraising best practices? If so, join us at the beautiful Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida for the 2022 Petrus Development Conference on June 13th through 15th. Connect with others from fundraising offices both big and small, from dioceses, campus ministries, schools, parishes, apostolates, and more. Register today at PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. Refer a friend to PDC22, and if they register before the end of January, you could win a free upgrade to your hotel room during the conference. Space is limited, so visit PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22 to reserve your spot today. Hey, Ren, do you remember a couple years ago when we went on that snowshoe hike in the woods? trying to figure out how to help more Catholic organizations raise more money? I do, Andrew. We had a great conversation about the need for churches and other nonprofit organizations to build new buildings, hire new staff, and increase their mission, but their need for a strong foundation of development skills. From that hike and that conversation came the idea for a manual for the annual fund, which is the fundamentals of development. 
From that conversation, we built the Petrus Annual Manual Program. It's crazy how just a couple of years later, we've helped dozens of nonprofit organizations just through a simple development calendar, guides and samples, and a weekly call with a consultant, raise more money and get a more solid footing for their development operations. It is great. You can learn about the Annual Manual yourself by visiting petrusdevelopment.com slash annual manual. So what did Strike do next? Now he's wealthy beyond all measure in the middle of the Great Depression. Yeah, so Strake becomes like one of the top three wealthiest men in all of America, literally overnight. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. The Conroe oil field, just to put it in perspective, still stands as the third largest oil reserve found in the United States ever. So Strake is super wealthy now, but he doesn't really kind of fall into the caricature of the Texas oil man. Oh yeah, like the tin gallon hat. Yeah. The uh you know the the character from Dallas. Yes. White uh white yes. suit and Who's that JW? Allig- yeah, alligator yeah. shoes <laughs> yeah. and Yeah. You know, so silk shirts. Yeah. So this this caricature of the Texas oil man was actually more popular overseas, but that was it's funny. Like even today in the 2020s, you know, if I talk to somebody from outside of America and I say I'm from Texas, Immediately, they're like, oh, do you have a cowboy hat? Do you ride a horse? No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I have a cowboy hat. I have boots, but uh, they're not required. But, do you have a horse? No, no horse. Oh. No. But that's the image that the cowboy and then the Texas oil man kind of has created around the world is this caricature. George Strake never really fell into that. What was important to him after becoming wealthy was the same things that were important to him before. It was going to church. It was reading his Bible. It was being faithful to his wife. It was raising his kids. It was generally keeping a pretty low profile, especially at this time. So his oil operations continued to spread into coastal and West Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, the southern states, and really as far north as Michigan and Nebraska. At one point, his oil fortune was estimated to be valued between 200 and $500 million in 1930s dollars. So I teased out at the beginning about this deal that he was going to make with Susan about how it would scare any husband Mm -hmm. uh, anywhere at any time. And we know that it was shopping that if he hit it big, he would not question her on her spending, you know, when she goes shopping. So did she follow suit? Did she follow through with this deal? Uh, Yes, most definitely. So she became a very (laughs) prolific shopper and was actually known internationally for her shopping. In fact, there was this funny joke. Her relative joked later when Susan died that department stores in Houston flew their flags at half mass that oh day. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> but I guess if you if you're hitting you know ten thousand barrels a day or yeah. more, uh, yeah. maybe you you've got a few dollars to spend. Yeah, but Susan was also an incredibly social person. So George was totally fine leading this quiet life, but Susan had no intention of that. They threw parties. They hosted celebrities and dignitaries. Later in life, they talked about having parties with folks like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, probably Danny Thomas (laughs) at some point in their life. And it was probably because of this and her that she made George more well-known outside the oil community than really he ever had any intention of being known. We heard back in the Rascob season, season two, that his philanthropy kind of caught the eye of the Church of the Vatican. Did the mm. same thing happen here with George Strake? Uh, yes, absolutely. So from the very beginning, you know, he 
immediately put money into Sacred Heart there in Conroe to build a new parish. He's still giving money away at a very rapid rate. Now, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but his giving is incredibly anonymous. He never wants anybody to know that he's giving. Now, that all being said, he's recognized as a very faithful Catholic, as a very wealthy oil man from Texas, and he it's not like Raskop. He didn't find out about it by opening Time magazine, but George Strake was also inducted into the Knights of the Sovereign Military Order of Malta in 1940. And before that, he was decorated from Rome as Grand Cross of the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre in 1937. So, yeah, he definitely got the eye of the Vatican at that time. And here's where the story gets really interesting. In 1940, a young priest named Father Walter Carroll showed up to meet with George Strake about a new project. The Pope... Pope Pius XII needed a very special man to help him with a wildcat project that would change the course of history, and he was hoping that George Strake was just the man for that job. What was the project? Well, Ren, you're going to have to come back next episode to find out. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions. Graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. If you're interested in hearing more stories about women in philanthropy, both as fundraisers and donors, check out our new Women in Philanthropy podcast hosted by Sarah and Tara. New episodes will be posted monthly. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Indefatigable? Indefatigable? Indefatigable. 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 (laughs) (laughs) That is the word that's going to get me. Or I could ask you that because... I'm from the north, and I've never heard that term before. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it should be me explaining all the, the Texas terms to all the, the southerners. Do not turn that in mid-recording. <laughs> Woo! I was messing with that earlier. You do it real slow, it sounds like a whale. Action. Oh, that's me. <laughs> are you are you phonetically... Wait, who said that? Where'd that come from? <laughs> oh. Indefatigable.